The racist field trip I have ever been on in my fucking life. They took us to a fucking cotton processing place. And there was a big ass cotton field out in the middle of fucking Raymond, Alabama, in the south of Montgomery County. We went there, and me and 28 other little nigglets in Miss Harper's third grade classroom, they took our asses out there in the middle of the fucking August heat and said, hey, y'all, they gave us bags and shit. Like little cute little plastic bags. With a cute, with a cotton puff person, with a smile on his face, and they're like, "Hey, y'all go out, y'all go out there, have fun, pick as much cotton as you want." And so I, my stupid ass went, you know, I went. My mama signed off on it and didn't think about it, and I went to the fucking field trip. I there the field just having a good old time. We were singing songs and shit in the middle of the motherfucking field, picking goddamn cotton in the middle of the fucking heat. And then, you know, I'm thinking, because it's a field trip, they told us you can pick as much as you want. Hey, you get to keep the fucking cotton. You can keep it. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep it. And we go to get back on the bus. They're like, all right, kids, turn your bags in. And they take our asses inside and took all the damn cotton that we had. And then told us to get back on the fucking bus. So me being a little rebel, I took a handful of cotton, stuffed it in my pocket, and went home. Then my mama came when she was doing laundry the next night. She was like, what the fuck? Is this cotton in your back pocket? I was like, yeah. Where the hell did you get unprocessed raw cotton from? Well, yesterday on that field trip, they took us to a, a cotton processing plant, and we got to pick cotton all day long. My mama came to the school and I swear to God, that shit went down. She locked this woman in a room like, how dare you jive ass motherfuckers take my kids and all these other ashy little Negroes to a fucking cotton field in the middle of the summer. You fucking soulless bitch. She fucking checked me out of school. I didn't go to school for three days buying that shit. She said, I don't want to have to look at that bitch. She was pissed at everybody. Yes, that was the most racist shit I've ever gone through in my life. I didn't even understand what was wrong until the next year. Alrighty then. Welcome back to Inane. Hope everybody's staying cool out there. It's heating up fast, man. It's not horrible here yet, but I know it's coming. Hey, I hope that intro didn't turn anyone off. But it popped up in my feed again, and I thought it was still timely. I don't miss living in the South, man. And that's why. Racism is fucked up, and it's still alive and well in the South. On the subject of the South, Jesus... It's like the world is imploding down there, south of all of us. First, that apartment building in Florida collapses. Then they get hit with a hurricane. Then late last week, the president of Haiti has gone down in his own home. And this other dude steps in. And people are rioting everywhere because they're not happy with the government. And now the people of Cuba are lashing out at their government. Uh, They finally had enough. And who could blame them? The economy's in the tank. Nothing's working there. This is what happens when the government doesn't take care of its people. I know half of this country wants less government, and I agree that sometimes putting the government in charge of too many things tends to make, you know, things will go south on you. But it's nothing like what's going on in the Caribbean. 
and I can never see it getting that bad. That whole Haiti thing. The company that I used to work for, we had this client in the Dominican Republic, super nice guy, really proud of his country. He'd show us pictures and it looked like paradise. And he'd talk about Haiti and how horrible those people have it. He, he gave me a real education, you know, from the source. And that's when I started, you know, looking up pictures. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It looked worse than those, the poorest parts of India. But it's been this way for decades and decades. I don't see that ever getting better. That's why when I hear about, you know, states wanting to secede from our union, <laughs> I just laugh. You have no idea how good you have it until you lose it or give it away. I mean, imagine if a state goes rogue and loses all federal funding and accommodations. Like Texas is a really good example. How many times have they screamed about separating from the rest of us? Then earlier this year, they had a power shortage, had these massive floods. Man, I just hope that people realize how dumb that is. If you have doubts, look at Haiti. And look what happened when Germany split in two. That was so bad. Czechoslovakia is another one. Czech Republic and Slovakia? The Czech Republic got the better end of that deal. Politics just ruin everything. Another thing that popped up just today, scientists are saying that the Amazon rainforest is now producing more carbon dioxide than it absorbs. And that's due to deforestation and rising global temperatures. And this now will only make our climate warmer over time. So they're pushing for Brazil to halt deforestation, which, of course, you know, the president of Brazil, he's, he's going to have a really hard time with that. So when I talked about global warming a couple of weeks ago, I meant global warming. This isn't just our problem and our fault. It's the world's problem. And the world needs to do its part, not just us. Because this summer, man, it's going to be savage. I swear, I do the show on Wednesdays, and some major news will break on Thursdays. Last Thursday was doozy, because I've been talking about this on the show lately. You remember when officials for the Tokyo Olympics said they were going to only allow Japanese uh, citizens at the event, they were going to limit it to 10,000 people, and there would be no cheering? Well, I guess COVID's gone rogue there again, and now over an abundance of caution, they're not going to allow anybody at all. If NBC Sports thought it was in trouble before, they're really going to be in trouble now. People in Tokyo are saying they, they shouldn't even put the event on at all. And like I said, unless they pipe in artificial crowd noise, the Olympics are going to be an absolute dud for everybody, especially the, these you know kids that are uh, competing. I mean, it's going to be like watching the Westminster Dog Show. Japan seemed to be doing so well, but this is what happens when you're late to roll out vaccinations and then people become careless. You let your guard down. You've seen videos and photos of these large cities in Japan, right? People are all on top of each other. They're congested. Even if everybody was masked up, you'd be hard pressed to keep a six foot distance from people. I called it the 2021 Dumber Olympics and it's, it's going to be a shit show. I'm just starting to worry about the safety of all the athletes. How many of them are going to test positive, then spread it without knowing, and bring that shit back to countries all over the world? I think it's a risk not worth taking. I love the Olympics. 
I know these kids have all worked really hard, but I worry about the safety of the people throughout the world. So Roadrunner, the new documentary on Tony Bourdain, gets released this weekend. In fact, late showings start tomorrow night. It's going to be a doozy. I think it's getting a pretty wide release for a documentary. The guy who directed it won the Oscar for his doc on Mr. Rogers. Won't You Be My Neighbor, I think it was called. So you know this thing's going to be a smash. So I read a review of it on the Daily Beast, and there were some eye-openers for me. Eric Repair, who discovered Tony's body, he's interviewed in it. You can expect that to get emotional, because Repair tends to be an emotional guy. But before I go any further with this, because I, I, I intend to go really far, I want to tell you something you may not know about me, and it relates to this. I've always wanted to be a journalist. My brother was a journalist, and it was my driving force to be like him, to tell stories, other people's stories, to relate to others what people were going through. And I pursued this as a career, to visually tell a story, photojournalism. And it was my connection to Bourdain, it was a connection in my, my blood, you know, my brother could tell these stories. And I've always aspired to deliver a story, someone else's, until I became the story, which is the one rule that you don't break in journalism. You never become the story. But I couldn't help that. I lost two important parts of my life, and that became my story. Bourdain, for however he wanted to deny it, was a journalist. His craft became journalism. He brought everyone else's stories to life. So Octavia, his ex-wife, she's in it. And she says it's the last time she will speak publicly on the matter to anybody. The thing that really got me, because there's so much I'm not privy to, is that David Chang is also featured. And he said something that really struck me. And that comes in the second half of the film. The first half, as most documentaries do, sets up the story. It gives anybody who doesn't know Bourdain an idea of how he got a start and the book he wrote that launched his TV career at Food Network. It's in that second half of the film when we see Bourdain's life start to unravel. One person not in the film is Asia Argento, that was Bourdain's last girlfriend, who I knew to be the person who took him on this downward spiral. Everyone around him noticed that he became obsessed with her, and she was his only focus. A friend of his says that he, he sent her an email saying that he knew his relationship with this chick would end very badly. At some point, he decides he doesn't want to do the show anymore. He says, I'm done with this. I'm done with you people. Because he destroyed his relationship with Octavia and his daughter, he was going to do his best not to mess this new relationship up. So the crew is heading to Hong Kong to film one of their final episodes, and the director gets sick. So Bourdain suggests letting Argento direct the episode. And this is when shit goes south. She may have been a fine actress, but she was a shitty director. He'd been doing, he was doing an interview, and right in the middle of it, she yells cut, which you never do when you're making a documentary. It ruins the natural flow of a conversation because you're not acting. Then she gets into an argument with the cinematographer, Zach Zamboni, very talented kid, 
He was one of Bourdain's favorite people to work with. Treated him like a son, you know. She's having creative differences with Zach. And this guy knows what works and what doesn't. He'd been doing this for years. He won three Emmy Awards. So Bourdain gets in the middle, ends up firing him. So this is where David Chang comes in. Bourdain was burning every bridge. Chang said, he said some shit to me that really fucking pissed me off. Tony said I would never be a good dad. And now Chang's crying. He says, that hurt. But he realized that Bourdain was projecting. He screwed up his chance to be a good husband and a father. So now he's lashing out at Chang. All of this stuff I'm telling you, it's all the signs of someone with depression. They feel destroyed. So they destroy everything around them. Every relationship and eventually themselves. Tony became addicted to Asia because the man had an addictive personality. And she was the wrong thing for him to get addicted to because she ultimately destroyed him. You know the story. She was big on this Me Too movement because she'd been sexually harassed by Weinstein. They were tweeting all over the place, Me Too this, getting in arguments on Twitter. Then the story comes out that she'd been inappropriate with an underage kid that she worked with on a movie. And then the rumor surfaced that Bourdain paid the kid a couple hundred grand to keep quiet. After all of that, photos of her with another dude surfaced in the tabloids. And it was over. That's not how Bourdain's life should have ended. But you can't stop someone from self-destructing when they have depression. I don't know if Tony was seeing a psychiatrist or talking to a therapist or taking any medications. It looked to me like he was just self-medicating with alcohol and this fake romance that he thought he had. Had someone close to him, even Repair, suggested that he seek help, maybe he'd have done it. Or maybe he wouldn't. No one knows how all-in he probably was in regards to destroying his life. You want to think that Bourdain's life was defined by something bigger than that? But I know that when I see this film, all I'm going to think about is his depression. When did it start? And what made it worse? When did it get worse? And I hope the director focuses on that at least a little bit. If he doesn't, he'll be wasting a huge opportunity to deliver an important message about the power of depression and how situations like this can be avoided in the future. It's an epidemic. We don't talk about it enough. And it costs us people that we love. To understand this whole collapse and the downfall of Bourdain in real time, because I truly wanted to piece this together. And remember, I admired this man. He was the reason why I wanted to start a podcast about food in the first place. So I go back and I rewatched the Hong Kong episode of Parts Unknown. And yes, I've purchased every episode of every show he's produced through the years. I have his entire back catalog. At exactly 27 minutes, 35 seconds, you can see this debacle happen in real time. He's in the middle of having a meal with two guys in Hong Kong who are explaining how hard it is to exist there as an expat from another country. Now, they're pouring their story to Bourdain, and he gets the cue from his wannabe make-believe actress turned director to cut. And he says, for the first time you'll ever see him say it, hold on a second, we have to reset. Then the cinematographer and this idiot girlfriend director steps in to reset the table. In no other documentary setting would you see this. It's amateurish. They even managed to catch this idiot Argento on camera giving direction. This, in one scene, 
is the downfall of Bourdain's career. He lost it. How they ever managed to squeeze a 12th season out of this show, well, half a season anyway, is anyone's guess. If you know much about the shows that he produced with 0.0, he was adamant that each episode had its own style, which was often borrowed or or paid homage to a, a specific film director or genre of film. And he wanted these cameramen to get exactly these, you know, the way it looked. He wanted it all just like that. He'd make a list of films for them to watch. And, you know, you had to understand what he wanted for that episode and replicate that style. Now, I don't know what style he was going with for this Hong Kong episode, but it had the shaky cam of like the Blair Witch Project. Now, he went all in on this chick, cards and chips on the table. And whenever you go you know, all in on a risk like that, Vegas in particular, you're destined to die alone in a hotel room, which he did. And that's a sad way for his story to end, but that's exactly how it ended. If you don't want to shell out 20 bucks a ticket to see this film in a theater, because that's what it costs now to see a movie, if you can believe that shit, it'll be airing on HBO Max and CNN some point, maybe in the fall or something. I mean, I'd pay to see the film in a the theater, but only if I knew I wasn't going to be like packed because I'm not sitting next to people I don't know, mask or no mask, for two hours unless I can keep a you know relatively safe distance. I'm still kind of paranoid about these new variants and it's just not worth the risk to be on top of you know complete strangers for two hours. Man, that last season of Parts Unknown, season 12, hard to watch. And they only finished editing six episodes or something like that. But his narration is missing because he died before they got a chance to record his voiceover. So that element's not there. And you realize just how important that was to these shows that they put together. They're eerily quiet. And it's a reminder that Bourdain's no longer with us. It's almost like a collection of lost episodes. There was a particular scene in the Indonesia episode where he's hanging with locals in Bali and they're barbecuing this whole pig that's being glazed with Coca-Cola. So they chop up the pig, they serve it over a pile of white sticky rice. And when they serve it to Bourdain, he's about to dig in. And you can hear the producer off camera instruct him to talk about the dish they're about to eat. So Tony looks off camera and he says, I'll cut it in VO. I've had this before. I know it very well. I'll handle it in voiceover. And that never happened. And it really starts to sink in that he's truly gone. And I know they left that in for a reason. These are unfinished episodes because his voice is missing. And it was his voice that was actually the thing about him that I and and people who are fans of his will truly miss the most. So now that the NC2A has been forced to drop their regulations on college players receiving money, remember that story? Reggie Bush wants his Heisman back. If you don't know who Reggie Bush is, he was a superb running back for USC played uh, 2003 to 2005, and he won the Heisman Trophy. But when the NC2A found out that Reggie and his family had accepted money and and special perks, about 300 grand, uh, they hammered him. And one of the most severe punishments ever laid out by college sports, his records were stricken, he had to return his Heisman Trophy. It's the only time a player has had to return the trophy. Even OJ, who murdered his wife, got to keep his Heisman. If that gives you any idea of how messed up that is, Jesus. 
So Bush came out recently. He said, uh, I never cheated this game. That was what they wanted you to believe about me. And they screwed the school too. USC had to vacate 14 wins that Bush played in and their national championship against Oklahoma in 2005. USC had to give up 30 scholarships and they weren't allowed to play bowl games for two years. That hurts recruiting. High school kids don't want to play at a school where they're not going to be seen. It takes years to come back from that. And Bush became an outcast at USC. His jersey was taken down. Think about how messed up this is. You play your ass off. You excel. But because the NC2A has this unfair practice in place, you become a ghost. Like none of this happened. Hey, if I were him, I would not only demand all that shit be reinstated, I'd sue them retroactively for emotional distress. He carried that shame like a scarlet letter the entire time he played in the NFL. It just sucks. I saw a picture someone posted from the top of Everest the other day. I don't know when it was taken. It never dawned on me before, but it looks like a trashy homeless encampment. Have you ever seen the top of Everest? Multicolored fabric everywhere, littered with oxygen bottles and shit. Just completely trashed. I know it's a major accomplishment to climb the highest peak on the planet, but this is your reward? A selfie of you in a homeless camp? (laughs) No wonder the gods are angry. They've got to stare at trash all day. A few years ago, I was thinking of things I've always wanted to do, but either didn't do them or I failed at them. Uh, You know, so many times I just gave up. Rock climbing was one of those things. So I told my wife I wanted to start rock climbing. So she gifted me a membership to a gym with the agreement that I would never actually go rock climbing because it was too dangerous. Basically, it's sport climbing. Padded floors if you fall off. You're belayed by someone on the tall walls. You're roped in so there's no fear of falling to your death, you know? I told her, look, that's no problem. I suck at this anyway. I just want to get in shape. Don had taken me climbing at Joshua Tree when we first started hanging out. It's really difficult if you just start now. Later, I learned that you've got to use your legs more than your arms, you know, to push yourself up. But I didn't learn that until I really started reading about it and doing it right. But it's a great workout. But I would never do anything dangerous like trying to climb a massive wall. That's just a death wish. It's too much risk. But those assholes who climb Everest, that's not even what I would call climbing anymore. They've got these Sherpas carrying all their shit up there. They pay something like 20 grand for the experience. It's a rich person's game. And it's super dangerous. Anybody who dies up there will get very little sympathy from me. You're dumb. I sympathize with the families. But if you're dumb enough to risk your life doing something that deadly, I'm not shedding tears. I took her to see Free Solo, the documentary about uh, Alex Honnold when he free climbed El Capitan. She was crying during the thing because she thought he was going to fall off and die. I guess I didn't tell her that he made it. She saw me reading his book. So, you know, I don't know what she was thinking. But that kid, once he did that, I just prayed he would never free climb something ever again. You know, you do it without ropes. Sooner or later, your luck's going to run out. And he's a great personality to have around. You don't want to lose someone like that. Hey, this is for male listeners of the show. And it's a bit personal. But it came up in a conversation I thought it was funny. 
Have you ever accidentally caught a glimpse of yourself in the mirror while you're, um, you know, doing it? If you haven't, don't. Because it's a showstopper. Have you seen the stupid faces we make? By absolute accident, this happened to me once. Glanced into a mirror, I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm atrocious. Why does she even want to do this with me? (laughs) Women are different. They look beautiful all the time. Men, if you watch a porno, look at the faces. We either look angry or kind of mentally messed up. Like you'll have one of two looks on your face when you're, um, you know, reaching the peak of Everest. <laughs> you either have an angry pain face or the look of a deranged person. You either look like someone just gave you a, a roundhouse kicked in the nuts or like you're about to sneeze. Like look at your face in the mirror sometime when you're about to sneeze. That's most likely what your O face looks like. I don't know why women deal with us. We're gross. <laughs> Shit. Anyway, maybe TMI, but I thought it was funny. We talked about it. All right. Oh, my God. Get ready for this. Kraft has teamed up with Brooklyn-based Van Leeuwen ice cream to create a macaroni and cheese-flavored ice cream, and it comes just in time for National Macaroni and Cheese Day, July 14th. That's today. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack in that one single sentence. Who the fuck asked for macaroni and cheese ice cream for starters? That just sounds gross on every level imaginable. Is the nation that in love with mac and cheese? How could this possibly be good? And who had the balls to pitch this idea at a creative meeting at Kraft? Because that's the kind of idea we get you fired. How stoned was the person who came up with this? an idea what if we made a mac and cheese ice cream and there's a national macaroni and cheese day now (laughs) i'm telling you there's a day for everything now here we are bitching and moaning about the cost of health care and we come up with bullshit like this obesity and diabetes on a cone what the hell's wrong with us and hey before you start calling me a snob i like mac and cheese i do i can't tell you how often i have it Because it's literally once in a blue moon thing. But I enjoy it. It's Americana. I like Americana. But turning it into ice cream just seems diabolical to me. And I'm sure you saw Richard Branson floating in space on Monday. Great, wasn't it? Do you see the look on his face? How the fuck are we supposed to feel good about this? Worse, how are we supposed to feel bad for Jeff Bezos, who Branson beat to space? Here, you've got two multi-billionaires living the dream of every kid from our generation. Full weightlessness. You can see the curvature of the earth. We're supposed to root for these assholes? These guys make more money than God, pay next to nothing in taxes. And Bezos is the worst. Do you know how horrible it is for Amazon employees who work there? They're spied on constantly. They can't even take piss breaks. All kinds of crazy stories. Employees just pissing into a bottle because they don't want to get in trouble. Like they have this app that monitors your progress and determines if you're efficient enough. And if you're not, the app will send you an alert that you've been terminated. They don't even have an actual person firing these guys. An app does it. It's ludicrous. Mark my words. You watch. They're, gonna, they're working on robots 
to do fulfillment. I guarantee you. And pretty soon, robots are going to fill your orders and they're going to have drones delivering your package and there's hardly going to be any actual human beings working at Amazon in about 10 years. You think I'm joking? Yeah. Well, I think I've offended enough people in this episode. Don't you? Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening. My name is Phil. This has been Inane, and I'll see you next time.